This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, and as I listen to our intro, I think, once that was kind of funny, this Ministry of SNARK stuff, (laughs) and with every day of passing news, it becomes less and less funny. Uh, I'm here, as we typically are on a Thursday afternoon, uh, in the studio at the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village, which we are grateful for the use of. And I am with, as we typically are on Thursday afternoons, I'm very glad to say, uh, with Ryan Goodman, who's a professor of law at NYU Law School and uh, is co-editor of the Just Security blog and who's kind of the brains of at least this part of the conversation. Fortunately, we're augmented in that regard as well. Uh, by our old friend Ben Wittes, who is the editor-in-chief of the Lawfare um, blog and who has been immersed in this uh, uh, Trump tornado of news for the past couple of years. Hi, Ben. Welcome. Hey. Uh, And so, you know, I'm looking across at Ryan, and, you know, he looks, you know, like he has PTSD, something to that effect (laughs) because literally every this is one of those weeks where every two hours there's a new news story um many of them have a legal subtext uh normally i come in and i've got a perfect story arc in my mind but really the best i can do today is throw out recent developments and get your reaction to them uh and i'm not going to do it in any particular order if that's okay with you um but let me start um, with one that is probably the number four story of today. Um, uh, and that is that the um, Office of Special Counsel, which is not the same as Mueller, but is the one that looks into things like the Hatch Act. It's the, the other point. Office of Special Counsel. You're right, which every government needs more than one. And it's, O-O-S-C. <laughs> oh, the OSC, exactly. Um but uh, it came to the conclusion that Kellyanne Conway, an aide to the president, uh, on multiple occasions violated the Hatch Act, which is an act that says that public officials um, can't uh, do campaigning while they're in their office. They also can't promote products while they're in their office. And Kellyanne Conway does this stuff all the time. And they said, and, and this is unusual for them, that she should be removed from her office. And almost instantaneously, the deputy White House press secretary uh, responded by saying that she was just exercising her free speech. Um, And, you know, who makes up these crazy laws anyway? Something to that effect. Uh, But Ben, you know, I was thinking because I'm, you know, old and I remember when I entered Washington shortly before the Andrew Johnson presidency. (laughs) <laughs> that that Andrew Johnson's impeachment was in part predicated on the fact that he failed to actually enforce laws that the Congress passed. Um, and so, you know, this does, you know, in the midst of, you know, 15 other reasons that there might be an impeachment inquiry, uh, suggest that the White House's ignoring of something like this, which it seems they're going to do, um, would be an impeachable offense. Now, what's, you know, 
What, what's your feeling about all this? All right. So, look, the search for impeachable offenses involves what the military would call a target-rich environment. <laughs> and I, I think if the question is objectively, is the tolerance of serial Hatch Act violations by one or more senior White House officials uh, willfully and in the face of findings by the Office of Special Counsel, uh, uh, reasonably construable as an impeachable offense by uh, Congress. I, I'm sure the answer to that is sure. If if that's the thing that offends Congress to the point of action in this administration, I I have no doubt that members of Congress could, consistent with their oath, vote to impeach on that basis. That said, I think the you know if you are not offended by volume two of the Mueller report, <laughs> the idea that you're going to be driven to impeach, if you're not a, offended by the serial calls to uh, prosecute one's political opponents, if you're not offended by uh, declaring career officials guilty of treason who have not been charged uh, if you're not offended by the attacks on the media, if none of these things uh, get you into the zone of impeachment, the idea that you're going to get there by virtue of a subordinate Hatch Act violation uh, strikes me as faintly fanciful. Said, look, I mean, in any other administration, this would be a major scandal. Yeah, well, you know, you listed four good causes of impeachment. We could throw in... Um, something having to do with uh, working with the Russian government. And I want to come back to that. And, of course, there's throwing children into cages and, you know, Puerto Rico. Oh, I, I, I didn't mean to give an exhaustive <laughs> I mean, I, I was merely mentioning some of the targets that if I were a member of Congress would be among my top candidates. I also think the... the uh, uh, I mean, there's there's a variety of of uh, of concerns that a Congress that was actually thinking about how to prioritize presidential misconduct uh, would be focused on. My point is that however you prioritize the highest, the most important items, this one would be relatively low on the list. Okay, well, Ryan, you know, you're entitled to your, this. Could be Article Eight, maybe, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> What Article twenty six, <laughs> footnote forty five. <laughs> yeah. uh, where, where where do you come out on all of this? Um, I think I agree with everything Ben said, and that in what Ben is saying is to kind of subdivide it into first: is it actually an impeachable offense? And the answer is very well might be. It could easily fit within the four corners because it is a failure to enforce the law. And in fact, the Office of Special Counsel says. Given the repeat offended offenses by uh, Kellyanne Conway, to let her go unpunished is to signal to the entire body of federal employees that this line doesn't matter. So it's it really is something of that level of significance uh, in the line between where we have had the law to actually police that nobody steps over it. That said, I don't think it you know fits within the top ten, um, and as a political matter. Would it gain any support for that? No, but it doesn't mean that we don't and shouldn't reflect on is this so grave as to actually even rise to the level of something that would be impeachable. Okay, well, I will make it rise. 
big, <laughs> I will. <laughs> I'm going to try to tie it to some other things, because I, I, you, I agree with where you guys are with this, but um, it is part of a pattern of um, arrogating authority to the executive branch and dismissing the role of the legislative branch, which has the primary authority for actually writing laws. If the executive branch can just say, we're not enforcing that one, you know, it, it's pretty dismissive. To me, though, Ben, the real big item of the week on that, and of course we have uh, failure to uh, honor congressional subpoenas and, 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 and or to say, you know, we don't think the Congress has the authority to, to grant those subpoenas and so forth. We, we had a uh, court filing earlier in the week in which the um, White House argued that only the executive branch has the ability to judge the president, that that's not the role of the Congress, uh, which, of course, you know, since the executive branch is hired by the president, run by the president, um, uh, and uh, re reports to the president on a regular basis, you suggest that the president could, if he wished to, put himself above the law because there would be no check on him. And, you know, amid all the news of the week, to me, this was one of the most egregious things, because even making this argument is essentially a kind of a coup attempt. Uh, and so where, where does that one figure in your, in your hit parade? Oh, so I'm going to disappoint you on this one. Um, I actually uh, believe almost categorically that the executive branch making a legal argument to a court in the context of a legal proceeding can never be an impeachable offense. And I, uh, I actually think it is fine for the executive branch to make outrageous legal arguments that uh, 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 should be rejected and we should make fun of. And, uh, and to me, the, where the rubber hits the road on this is when the argument is rejected and there is an order to comply with this subpoena, it is an impeachable offense, in my view, to defy to continue to resist past the point at which your arguments have been rejected. But I, uh, I believe that every criminal defendant is entitled to make any frivolous uh, legal argument they want to make. And I believe the president of the United States is entitled to make frivolous legal arguments. And the, that the general check against that is a political ridicule and B that they will not prevail. And so to me, the acid test comes not at the point of filing the brief, but at the point at which the, the poor solicitor general's office uh, or the poor civil appellate lawyers get their head handed to them by the, by the Second Circuit um, or the D.C. Circuit. I forget which court this was in. Um, you know, do you then, and you've exhausted your cert petition, do you then snap to attention and comply or do you at that point continue to resist? So, Ryan, same question to you. But, you know, I, just to add to it, of course, this is in the context of a thesis that is put forth by the president and some around him or by some around the president on his behalf of the unitary executive. Uh, and there is not just this legal argument being made, but their behavior is being guided by this. And they do seem to be acting um, uh, in a way that 
that that suggest that this is a much more broadly implemented policy. Now, Ben makes a good point. Court's got to rule on that. And once we get to that, we're at a different kind of a red line in this. But what's your view? Um, so, I, you know, I think I could maybe get into a difference with Ben on are there no actions within a courtroom that the president uh, would be actually liable in terms of as an impeachable offense? Like, what if he's filing frivolous suits or we know for a fact, and it could be proven, let's say he says it on an audio tape, that he's actually making a defense that he knows is completely unconstitutional, but he's doing it only because it will drag out the clock and he can't be impeached in time before the next election. So I, I just, I'm not sure that, that there's an empty set there in terms of the activity within a courtroom being immunized in a certain sense. But I do think that if we go down that path, we would lose um, sight of this bigger picture, which I think we're all talking about as well, this kind of abuse of power. And you could imagine in articles of impeachment, the, you know, across the waterfront ways in which the administration is not allowing Congress to carry out its constitutional duties. That seems to be an abuse of power. Um, and that we have to take into it, and, and all the stonewalling, and if they indeed are making arguments that they know uh, can't withhold uh, scrutiny uh, in courts. And this kind of argument and this aggregation of power, especially with the unitary executive theory and an, and an attorney general that thinks that he is subordinate to the president and that the there is only one executive and that is the president of the United States everybody else must lockstep follow suit and they uh, and those are the only people that can investigate the president that's what we're dealing with and i think that amounts to an abuse of power in the way in which it's being carried out so i don't i don't think it's a um a stretch to get there um and even if we don't think about it in terms of impeachable um it's at least identifying the problem so ben where do you so just, just, just to be clear, I, I think I said almost categorical, mm. and the word almost there was actually uh, meant to describe uh, roughly the category of exceptions that, that, that Ryan flagged here. My, you know, I, I think, you know, you would want to, you would want, you want to create a pretty broad space for legitimate legal arguments to be ventilated, and that includes some less than legitimate legal arguments, allowing some less than legitimate arguments to be ventilated. That said, you could imagine a, a, a point at which the, it's become simply dilatory and uh, not in good faith, mm. and I would probably exhaust, before I treated it as an impeachment matter, I would probably want to exhaust things like sanctions to the lawyers in question mm. for making the arguments, uh, as well as uh, potential contempt issues. Um, generally speaking, I, I, I do want to keep a pretty broad space for, uh, you know, these separation of powers arguments to be argued. That said, I, I agree with Ryan that it's possible to imagine an extremity of conduct uh, that you simply you know, cannot reconcile with good faith separation of powers disputes. Um, okay. And, you know, perhaps in a different kind of a week, we could have a nice, interesting discussion about the unitary executive. But there's just too much going on this week. Uh, last night, we're taping, or we're doing this live and taping it on Thursday. Last night, uh, it was released 
uh, conversation between George Stephanopoulos of ABC News and the President of the United States, in which the President of the United States said uh, that if a foreign power offered him information that might be useful in the election against uh, the candidate he was running against, he'd take it. And he wouldn't tell the FBI, because who tells the FBI anything? Uh, he, he certainly has never called the FBI. Of course, <laughs> within about 30 minutes, you know, the news media gave an example of a time he did actually offer to speak to the FBI back in his casino days. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the bigger issue here was, you know, the, you know, this was, and many people cited it as such, uh, you know, the the equivalent of the 2016 invitation of the Russians to come and, you know, release the emails, give, you know, give us give us the emails if you've got them. Uh, and, you know, some people suggested, Ryan, you know, sort of collusion 2.0, collusion in plain sight, you know, open season. What do you think? Um, I thought it was extremely. Extremely egregious. <laughs> so, and yes, it is um, a repeat of, you know, Russia, um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, North Korea, if you're listening. Um, and in a sense, Although was. he cited Norway. And I wonder what the Norwegians have on him. <laughs> right. um, though I think even Stephanopoulos in the question said, you know, like Russia. Um, so it's almost like he would do it again. Uh, Stephanopoulos reminded him that the current FBI director, Chris Ray, has said that, of course, you must notify the FBI. And he said the F and then the president of the United States said the FBI director is wrong. Um, so, you know, as, as some have said, imagine if he didn't say it on camera live to Stephanopoulos, but uh, it was a secret audio taping of him in the White House uh, speaking to the campaign legal advisor or the chair of his campaign and that's what he said um that would be utterly explosive except the only difference is he said it publicly and without any shame yeah and had said it before and and did it and followed through on it and defended it and continues to do it and continues to follow through on it um ben what was what was your reaction well i want to flag a couple things the first is you know, when he made that Russia, if you're listening, comment uh, during the 2016 campaign, a lot of respectable people and uh, assumed in good faith that he must be joking. And I remember having a lot of, you know, I was appalled by that comment. And I wrote something uh, dyspeptic and angry about it the day that he did it. I can't, I can't believe I, that you would write something dyspeptic and angry. No, I was furious. I mean, I, I, it seemed to me that a, a major party presidential candidate had called on a foreign intelligence agency to hack his political opponent, which, uh, and I got a lot of response from people who I admire and think highly of that come on, you're overreacting. It was clearly a joke. Um, and so I read with great interest in the Mueller report in volume one, where Mueller describes what Trump did in that same time frame behind the scenes, which was uh, to order Michael Flynn to launch an effort to recover those emails. Uh, this is the 30,000 
uh, supposedly missing emails from Hillary Clinton's server. Um, and so in other words, what the Mueller report showed was that he was very much not joking. He was uh, in fact committed to getting Hillary Clinton's emails and he called on the Russians publicly to release them or to, to turn them over. And he privately uh, ordered Michael Flynn to figure out how to get them. And, and Flynn actually, this then spot prompts a uh, substantial effort on the, on the part of a bunch of people who were associated at the sort of peripheries of the campaign to try to recover these emails, uh, which involved you know, some pretty disturbing activity. Um, and the reason I remind people of this story is that there's a temptation when you hear Trump talk this way to Stephanopoulos to say, oh, well, he must be joking or it must be a matter of hyperbole or, you know, yeah, he says that because he wants to seem unapologetic, but he would never actually do that. And uh, I think it is important to remember that the last time he did something like this, his behind the scenes activity was in fact exactly consistent with his public activity. And so I don't know who the rough equivalent to, of Mike Flynn is right now. Um, but Rudy Giuliani, I, maybe Rudy Giuliani, maybe, you know, I'm not honestly sure. Is he having some conversation with somebody in which he's doing the private version of that conversation with George Stephanopoulos. Well, that's a, I think that's an interesting question, Ryan. But of course, you know, one of the things that we know is um, that, you know, in that instance, he followed it up um, by doing what Ben said. And then uh, there were, you know, scores and scores of instances of interactions with the Russians. And then, um, uh, uh, you know, denying that and then embracing the Russians after becoming president and offering them policy quid pro quos for whatever it was that they did and and obstruction and, and all that. And that's just been an ongoing thing. So another way to look at this is as a continuation mm -hmm. of a, a longstanding policy. I, I think it's also interesting, though, that, you know, um, he's been joined in this as he was then by the Senate. You know, McConnell objected to, you know, Obama, you know, bringing this public at the time or uh, to driving the investigation further. And uh, in the past few months, we've seen him block funding for uh, efforts to uh, um, uh, protect us against further interventions. And, and interestingly, Today, in the wake of the president's comment, uh, Senator Warner sought to get a unanimous agreement by the Senate um, that, you know, people shouldn't take, you know, I mean, even though it's already against the law, that people shouldn't take this kind of information. They should, you know, uh, uh, stop this kind of behavior. And Marsha Blackburn, a senator, stood up and objected to it, Stop. Stop the process in its way. So it's not just the president. It's not just now. It's not just in the open. It's been going on for a long time. And it's involved not just the Mike Flynn's and the Rudy Giuliani's, but in the entirety of the Republican Party. Yes. Um, and yeah, the uh, parallels with McConnell in 2016, um, not wanting to alert the public, 
um, and stopping or slowing down the, the alerting of the public until uh, October about the Russian interference, and then McConnell blocking legislation um, as we speak uh, to protect the public from Russian election interference, I think is similar. I think another thing that's also kind of similar in a sense in the way in which Ben brought us back to the uh, Russia, if you're listening, co uh, statement by the president is that when the when Trump as candidate made that comment, there were a number of Republicans that came out to um, repudiate him publicly, uh, but uh, they didn't otherwise necessarily distance themselves from him. And similarly today, um, Lindsey Graham has said that uh, President Trump's comment to uh, Stephanopoulos was wrong. But that's it. It's, he, he, it just, um, you know, well, Sen it's, Senator uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy, said that uh, he would report it to the FBI, and he's sure the president would too. Right, covering you, for him. You're just right. saying, you know, he, he didn't he didn't really mean what he said. Right. So, and even if you can get like Lindsey Graham that far to say something uh, different than the president and critical of the president, he doesn't follow through. So, we still don't have him following through in legislation. We don't have him following through as the chair of the Judiciary Committee. So, in terms of the disjunction between what people will say publicly and what they'll otherwise do um, in terms of action, um, I think it's kind of the flip side of what Ben pointed out, that in fact Trump is more consistent and what, what he says he actually does um, privately. The, the, the ugly stuff that he says he follows through on, and then we have the opposite. Well, you know, Ben, another component of this, of course, is that it has consequences. And that there are governments around the world who hear this and they think, okay, well, we can do more of this. That might be the Russians. It might be others. Uh, the president hasn't really sort of weighed the calculation that it might be people who oppose him, uh, who might be helping out his uh, opponents in, in, in all of this. Uh, but it does bring up another point, and which we discuss here almost on a weekly basis uh, with Ryan, who's been very good on this, and you've been very good on this, which is the counterintelligence side of this whole thing, that at the end of the day, there's a national security issue here. And since James Comey left the FBI, um, the, the, the Gang of Eight, uh, and, and you know, according to Schiff, has not been briefed on what's going on in the counterintelligence. They don't know what's going on in the counterintelligence. We see you know, activity that might be worrisome. Uh, clearly, uh, FBI Director Ray is you know has said i wish this information would get passed on to us so he's you know concerned about this uh there's every reason to believe there'll be more of this in the future um and yet the national security issue at the center of this thing is kind of the forgotten stepchild of the whole thing um and and, and is not getting followed up on it. i'm wondering what your sense is of that well so first of all uh, since, I mean, it's important to say that I know absolutely nothing here that isn't public. And, um, but I think there's actually two concerns and they're distinct. So the first concern is the one that Schiff, uh, that you, you referred to with respect to Schiff, which is that uh, whatever activity is going on within the FBI um, on the counterintelligence side with respect to this is not, has not, appears not to have been briefed to Congress in a good long time. Uh, the second question, which is 
a distinct one, I think, is how much activity on this score is going on in the FBI at all. And, you know, for most of the Mueller investigation, everybody, including me, assumed that the Mueller investigation had two components, right? One was a counterintelligence component, and the second was a criminal component. And that both of the sort of major FBI inquiries, which were kind of merged, but were had distinct elements in the uh, investigation that, uh, you know, that Mueller took over, uh, had been subsumed by Bob Mueller. And that turned out to be wrong. Uh, as the Mueller report made clear, Mueller inherited the criminal dimensions. The FBI retained the counterintelligence dimensions. Um, and they set up a pretty interesting and elaborate system that was essentially a one-way channel of information as the Mueller investigation acquired information that had counterintelligence components. They had a team of FBI agents in their office that was routing that material to the Bureau. Uh, and so the question is, how, whatever happened to the counter, not just how much of it's being briefed to Congress, but whatever happened to the counterintelligence dimensions of this investigation. So here is my concern. Um, if you are an FBI counterintelligence agent, or supervisor, and you watched what happened to Jim Comey and what happened to Andy McCabe and what happened to Pete Strzok and, the, uh, 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 and what happened to Jim Baker and uh, what happened to other FBI counterintelligence officials who were uh, raked over the coals by the inspector general. Um, how aggressive were you going to be on this score? Well, and Ryan, in the midst of an investigation that the attorney general has said he's going to make a priority of, of investigating the investigator. Right. And then, as we mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation, the president of the United States not only just calling these individuals by name um, to have committed treason, but he said that in response to a reporter saying to him, you know that the crime of treason is punishable by death. Who do you mean? And then he proceeded to name some of the people that Ben just named. So the President of the United States is doing that, and the Attorney General is seemingly carrying out this project. Um, uh, with, you know, we have reporting in the last 24 hours from the New York Times that the Attorney General is not just looking at, for example, the FISA uh, warrant for Carter Page and the origins of the investigation, but is actually going to try to interrogate the CIA's assessment that the Russians interfered to favor Trump. Something that, except for Devin Nunes, I'm not sure anybody else doubts that. Even the Senate Intelligence Committee in a bipartisan report said that the, that the intelligence community's community-wide assessment that the Russians interfered to help Donald Trump was validated as well by Donald Trump's senior intelligence officials. So that's what we're looking at. So when Ben talks about this in terms of a kind of a purging, um, that's what the investigation of the investigators is has become. Um, then, of course, that has to be if people fear for their paycheck or for their careers or their public reputations, uh, they've got to worry about it.
Can, can I just add something to that? Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, last year, um, a colleague and I uh, litigated um, to get from the FBI the uh, annual climate survey that they do of all their employees. And this is material that uh, the FBI, to its credit, does a quite detailed uh, evaluation of employee morale on a pretty consistent basis every year. They ask pretty much the same questions. And um, our hypothesis was that morale would have plummeted in the year that uh, Comey was after the year after Comey was fired and Chris Ray had not been especially public or energetic in defending the institution. And so my working hypothesis was uh, that you would see a dramatic change in morale in, in the Bureau. And that actually turned out to be wrong. Uh, it, you know, the uh, uh, numbers have held out pretty well, at least in 2017. We'll see. We are, we're currently litigating to get this year's numbers. But uh, at least initially, the numbers held up pretty well, except in one area, um, which is in the counterintelligence space. And if you look at the numbers, we pu pu published them all on Lawfare, uh, the numbers really tanked among people who work in counterintelligence. And I think that is a reflection it's only gotten worse. I, I mean, I don't know if the numbers have gotten worse, but the atmosphere has only, only gotten worse since then in exactly the way that Ryan is describing. And I, I think you can actually see a measurable impact on employee morale at the institution among the people that we ask to do this particular work. Um, well, it's no wonder. The president of the United States says he will accept the aid of foreign enemies. He has accepted the aid of foreign enemies. He's defended them. And now he has made that sort of public statement. And at the same time, he has directed the efforts of the Department of Justice um, away from investigating toward that and to penalizing people for actually trying to protect the United States of America. It's it's an extraordinary turn of events. Um, and uh, And yet, for some reason... <laughs> The Democratic leadership in the House of Representatives does not see fit to investigate this uh, in, in, in with this kind of aggression that some people think is called for uh, through an impeachment hearing. We did a, a po podcast on Monday. I did a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Larry Tribe, and he talked about his theory that, you know, let's have an impeachment investigation and then see what should go next, but that this would give this a, a little bit more heft. Now, the, the centerpiece of this is based on the theory that some Democrats have that to do an impeachment investigation will turn off some swing voters and that when election time comes around, they're going to be the critical votes. I have not seen one piece of evidence of any sort that supports this view, but that's that's the view. Um, and I'll go to each one of you and, you know, what's your take? Um, so I think that I, so I think one thing that maybe we'll start to distinguish more in these conversations is uh, whether or not there's public support for impeaching Trump versus public support for having an impeachment inquiry. So just this week, the Quinnipiac poll, had, Quinnipiac had a, one of their polls come out. And as and one would anticipate, I think it's about a third of the public support impeachment. 
But then they ask another question. It wasn't perfectly framed, but it was basically trying to get at the question, do you support an impeachment inquiry? And that was in your... Right. It was framed. How do we have to phrase this question in order for enough of you to support it <laughs> that we can get something right. in? Right. Well, it was about should should Congress investigate towards... And that was a near majority. I think it's 48% um, of the public. So if the public is, in a certain sense, sophisticated, that might even be that we don't think the penalty should come until you have the trial, but we do think you should have the trial um, and the investigation. This shouldn't go and you know pass by without a, a serious investigation with it being an impeachment investigation, that overhanging it. Um, so that is in the polling, and I think that's what would be the stronger question is, does the public support opening the inquiry and then bring in, in a certain sense, Larry Tribe and others and say, where the public stands today is not static in terms of where they will be educated by an impeachment inquiry and the um, uh, vision of these kinds of hearings in which Hope Hicks will not be able to <laughs> uh, testify in, closed, in a closed room, but rather in public and Don McGahn and others. Um, and then the public might very well shift. I would think that you would think 48% and is actually a the low point, and it would only increase over that period of time. It wouldn't decrease. So, Well, and, and by the way, the level of support for impeachment is higher now than it was a year before the Nixon impeachment, mm. and the Nixon impeachment resulted in just the kind of shift you're talking about. Right. Um, right. Uh, what's, your, what's your view on this, Ben? So I am not a political analyst, and I don't purport to have a good read um, on the likely political effects of impeachment. And I am also not uh, responsible for weighing the right answer against other goods like political damage to Donald Trump. Um, my job, as I see it, is to tell what the right answer is. And the right answer to this one is a super easy question to me. Um, and so, you know, if, if Nancy Pelosi feels the need uh, with some very good political analysts to weigh that against other prudential and political factors, I don't necessarily begrudge her the need to do it. Um, you know, she's a politician, and that's what politicians do. Uh, I do think if there were, if there was ever a question, if the question is, is the right answer that there should be an impeachment inquiry, the answer to that is duh. Um, you know, if the question is, how satisfied with you are you with something uh, less than the right answer, my answer is personally not. Um, but then again, I'm not an elected member of the House, much less a member of the House leadership. Well, I think we can all unite behind duh as an answer. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I do think it's, you know, that, that, you know, there are a lot of hard questions in in American constitutional law. And there are a lot of them in the areas that Ryan and I work on that we would disagree about. Right. Um, and in fact, the fact that lawfare and just security are two separate sites is actually historically a reflection of that reality. Um, the fact that we're having this conversation, we've been talking for 40 minutes now, and we haven't found anything to disagree about yet, is a reflection of the extremity of the current moment. And 
you know, we're not merely in a moment, moments of agreement. We're in a moments of agreement about words like duh. <laughs> well, also, you guys are very affable fellows. We've got, you know. No, but we're, we're, we normally disagree affably. Right, right. No, no, I, no, I understand that. Well, let me, let me, let me shift the, the focus a little bit and let me try to do a throwback to another moment um, where you might have been writing about something. Uh, and it's totally off the point of all of these things, and we've only got a couple minutes left, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't address it, given what my background is and what your background is. And, and that is, uh, and let me start with Ryan, and then we'll go to Ben, but um, uh, uh, this week there has been some activity with regard to Iran. And one of the things that has happened on the Hill is that there, has been, there have been some arguments made uh, that the authorization to use military force that dates back to the wake of the 9-11 attacks um, uh, would apply to using military force against Iran. In other words, they would not need another one because of alleged ties, the government asserts, that exist between the government of Iran and al-Qaeda. Now, that's you know, pretty dubious assertion, but uh, it's not the most dubious assertion that's been made this week. Uh, there were a couple of attacks made on oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman, uh, and Secretary Pompeo came out and said, the Iranians did this, uh, and that's bad. And, uh, and then he left the stage, and he didn't take any questions, and he offered no evidence. Now, you know, we've all lived through the Iraq experience. And, I, you know, I think when you see the, you know, sort of coincidence of events like this, one starts to worry. And I'm just wondering what your reaction is to all that. Yeah, so um, I think it's deeply troubling because the idea that um, Pompeo apparently said to members of Congress in a private setting that um, Representative uh, Lissa Slotkin uh, um, just mentioned in the uh, markup of the NDAA is that uh, the 2001 authorization that Congress gave to fight al-Qaeda and the Taliban somehow has uh, mutated into the situation that it could also justify war with Iran. In other words, um, the executive branch would not need to go back to Congress for any authorization they already have it. And they can do with it what they want. They can strike Iran when it's they want. It's kind of a brilliant yeah. legal argument because, of course, al-Qaeda and the Taliban are in, in some ways sworn enemies of the Iranians. Uh, and if you use this, this, you will only ever need one authorization to use military force. We can just impute enmities <laughs> and say, we'll, you know, it covers both sides and it will cover everything. Right. Yeah, I suppose the mistake that Pompeo made is by not saying that the uh, al-Qaeda was responsible for the oil tankers because <laughs> then there would be the daisy chain and it'd have it all. Um, and it is actually, there's so there's that, that part of it in terms of domestic legal authority is very troubling. Um, and that members of Congress are now voicing that. They have an opportunity to do something about it. In the NDAA, they could pass legislation that says... Not only, as they've done before, that nothing in the NDAA authorizes the use of force against Iran, but also nothing in any other existing statutory, uh, in any other existing statute authorizes force against Iran. In other words, there might be a context or situation in which force against Iran is legitimate, but then the executive branch has to come to Congress uh, to get that uh, authority. 
and just to throw out another one uh, that we've had some um, discussion about this on just on just just secure security, security is that you know Bolton is running his about the conditions under which the United States would use force against Iran. And he says it's not just if Iran like blows up these tankers, but if Iranian proxies do. And I think that there's a lot of weakness behind that position in terms of international law and the UN Charter, and even who is a proxy or who is controlled by Iran, because there are factual questions about the Houthis in Yemen. Um, so I think both of these kinds of attempts here of setting the table uh, by, by Pompeo and by Bolton are worrisome in terms of what they have in mind and as a legal matter, um, are uh, weak. Do you have a view on this, Ben? I do. So I, uh, first of all, I am not in a position to evaluate the intelligence that Secretary Pompeo put forward on Iranian activity. So I'm going to pass on that. Uh, I will say that the as to the application of the AUMF to Iran, uh, I think that argument is pretty trivial, um, with one exception, which is if you were contemplating the use of force against Iran for support of terrorist activity of a type that was, uh, say, Sunni uh, is extremism in a form that is reasonably historically tied to al-Qaeda. Uh, I think you could make a plausible argument for it in somewhat the same way that the uh, United States has taken the position that uh, the ISIS campaign is a uh, proper AUMF activity because of ISIS's historic relationship with al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is in turn a derivative of, of, of al-Qaeda. Um, that is not the argument being made here, right? The argument being made here is uh, use of force against Iran uh, over some combination of its current state activities uh, and its nuclear program. And these have simply nothing to do with anything the AUMF is about. And uh, I think if you can make this argument, um, you could really make the argument that any country is covered by the AUMF because it's engaged in some activity that we don't like currently, and we can hypothesize a relationship historically between it and al-Qaeda. And uh, I'm not sure why, for example, Saudi Arabia wouldn't be covered by the AUMF on the same basis. And for that matter, um, you know, lots of other countries in the region. And so I... I well, why stop you know, at countries? You know, it could be the New York Times. After all, if they're the enemy of the people and Al-Qaeda <laughs> was the enemy of the people, we, you know, we could go further. Um, yeah, so, I mean, look, you can say say such things. I mean, I'm trying to, trying to take the argument a little bit more seriously than that, but... Um, but but look, the argument is is bad, and and it's uh, I actually think the better argument would be uh, a pure inherent authority argument, which at least you could then tie in both domestic and international law 
to some imminent threat that Iran might pose, which given that it is uh, you know, a, a genuinely bad actor that poses all kinds of threats to all kinds of things is something that you could make out factually, though I don't think is a I don't think it's a good argument, but I think it's a better. I'd be curious whether Ryan agrees with that. I actually think it's a better argument than the than the AUMF uh, tie. I think it's a. I, I think the AUMF tie is just is, to be honest, isn't even really an argument. It just doesn't. It really does not work. So, are there some situations in which Article Two authority, just the president's constitutional power, might? allow him for some limited duration to use force against Iran, there could be. And then, then we're like um, hostage to the kind of intelligence that we don't have the information for. And we should also, you know, just expand it out one bit, which is the Article Two power from the president could be in service of protecting collective self-defense of allies. So if Iran attacks a U.S. ally even in kind of a pinprick strike or a tanker, then the argument starts to get off its feet, and the United States' position is under international law as well, not just domestic law, that you can do this uh, tit-for-tat, proportionate strike. Well, you don't have to wait for don't you, under the War Powers Act, have the ability to take at least short-term action without? Um, if it's within the president's Article Two power, and, if it's in, and then that could be justified, just as uh, they justified it with the serious strikes. So that's that's more off to the races, and they don't need to justify an all-out war. All they need to do is justify the escalation of hostilities, and then it will take its own path. So. Here, here's my prediction for you, David. If we launch any kind of military action against Iran, this will be some iteration of what Ryan just described will be the principal argument and the and the AUMF argument will be a kind of secondary throw in. And by the way, the AUMF lets us do whatever we want. Um, but they but but this is actually a stronger argument than the AUMF thing. And um, and it's a and if if they decide to proceed with something without going to Congress, they will rely on their strongest argument, not their weakest argument. Well, it's an important issue, and, it, and, and I hope it's a reminder that not everything has to do with the Trump-Russia case and not everything has to do with the current scandal in Washington, uh, whatever else that may be, and that, in fact, there are some big issues out there at play in the world. Uh, and right now, the situation in the Persian Gulf is worrisome. Uh, worrisome to me, by the way, as a observer of these things, because... I can't think of a reason why the Iranians would actually attack these tankers. I, I can't see of a reason why it's in their interest. And so then the question becomes, in whose interest is it? And why would, you know, what are they trying to produce? Um, and that's quite, quite worrisome if you follow through that logic. So because there were so many really important legal issues to cover here, we couldn't do it without Rosa, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center, who is part of the core team here, the Brains Trust on so many things, but really takes the lead on legal issues. Uh, Rosa, you know, I, I hardly know where to start, but let me start with this. One of the things that the Trump administration seems to be doing, and, it, and, and it's manifested itself in a lot of things this week, is arguing essentially um, to support this idea of a unitary executive, of the president's powers 
su- surpassing anybody else's. They argued in court this week that only the executive branch can judge the president and determine whether he's done anything wrong. Congress really didn't have a role to play. They've argued that they don't have to respond to congressional subpoenas. They've argued that the law doesn't even apply if they don't want it to, whether it's the law uh, that says that the uh, IRS got to kick over tax returns to the Ways and Means Committee or it's Kellyanne Conway uh, um, following the Hatch Act. Uh, and, and this seems to me to be a big deal, and it seems to me to be uh, what you'd call constitutional rot. But more happened this week, and I'm wondering what your view is. Yeah, it's uh, this is not an argument that has never been heard before. Um, we heard it uh, during the first term of George W. As well, we heard out of the administration when it came to their theories of unitary executive. Uh, now, as then, I think these are arguments that are historically bankrupt. Uh, I think that they are legally bankrupt, and I think, from the perspective of the framers of the American Republic, uh, you know, they frankly they should go back and reread the Declaration of Independence, which tries to explain why it's not such a hot idea to invest any one individual with absolute power to be essentially judge, jury, and executioner uh, uh, in all cases. Um, obviously, suggesting that anyone in the Trump administration reads something, not a viable, viable suggestion. Um, but everybody else should go and reread the Declaration of Independence. And while they're at it, they could reread the Federalist Papers and a little bit of John Locke and a few other things, too. Um, so, no, it, it's, it's an appalling argument. Um, it's a morally bankrupt and appalling argument. Uh, and we need to all be making the point that that's what you call tyranny. That is not what you call democracy. That's what you call tyranny. Yeah, well, you know, and when we had this conversation a moment ago with uh, Ben Wittes, he was like, well, you know, the the White House is well within its arguments to say anything it wants uh, in a court. It's going to be up to a court to determine uh, whether this, uh, you know, how they view this. And then uh, the White House, we're going to have to see whether the White House uh, uh, you know, follows the court's decision or not. I, I assume in your uh, reluctance to call anything a constitutional crisis, that's kind of the point where it happens, right? right? It's kind of the point where once a judgment is made, if they ignore it, then, then we have a next-tier problem, right? I think that's right. I, I think that... Uh in the case of the Bush administration, for instance, um, uh, when push came to shove, when the Supreme Court said on, on several vital issues, no, you can't do that, you need to stop, the Bush administration very grudgingly um, said, okay, um, we think the court is wrong, but we're going to stop. Um, and it remains to be seen what will happen with the Trump administration. Um, if there is ultimately, you know, court orders that they start ignoring. I, I do think that, that that's a real danger sign when you actually start ignoring court orders. Um, that being said, I'm not quite as willing as, as Ben, <laughs> I don't mean to put words into his mouth, I'm not quite as willing to to say, oh, well, you know, all's fair in love and war and law and, and all's fair in, in legal briefs and pleadings. Um, all that really matters is what you do when the court tells you you're, you're full of full of nonsense. Um, I, I think that and I felt the same way during the early part of George W. Bush's administration. I, I think it's it's 
terrifying to see a president making those arguments, frankly, whether or not they ultimately bow to a court's contrary decision. Um, the fact that American political culture, that American uh, adherence, bipartisan adherence to democratic norms has become so attenuated that we increasingly are seeing presidents who think it's okay to even make that argument, I find quite shocking. Well, and of course, it's 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 been a long time coming, right? I mean, whether you go back to uh, the Nixon administration and, you know, this OLC ruling that, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, presidents can't be indicted or you go to the War Powers Act or you go to certain other kinds of things that the, the, the presidents have found ways to arrogate more and more authority into the White House and people have not blocked them in part because I think there was a view that 99 times out of 100 or maybe 44 times out of 45 uh, there would be some kind of rationality. And certainly, if the president were not rational, there would be people who would stand up to him in the Senate or uh, in his own administration. And we've now found ourselves at, at, the, at the point that disproves that argument, where you can actually have somebody irrational asserting irrational independence and being supported by all the parts of the government that are supposed to create a check. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I think that what resistance there has been within the Republican Party and within the Trump administration has largely been uh, to be the most generous possible read is that it has been muted and quite ineffective overall. Uh, uh, to be less generous, it's been close to non-existent. Um, and and I do think that 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 failure on the part of so many Republicans to stand up and be counted when it comes to things like this in, in opposition to what the president is saying is in some ways, you know, more shocking than the fact that Donald Trump is being Donald Trump, right? Um, it's that Donald Trump has managed to, through some combination of creating fear or, or you know, tossing around, tossing out little, little dog biscuits to everybody, uh, create an environment in which nobody's willing to to stay to speak out against him. Um, the, the the other thing I, I would say, I, one thing that I think this should teach us, and we should be thinking about right now, not waiting to think about you know five years from now or ten years from now, is the perils of letting bygones be bygones. Right? I think that I mean going as far back as the Nixon administration, you know, he resigned. Um, he was pardoned. Uh, then, in the George W. Bush administration, some of the, in, in that context, these claims about uh, executive power came in the context of things like uh, the use of, of torture against detainees and indefinite detention and other violations of both U.S. federal law and, and our international obligations. And when President Obama came into power, he said, let bygones be bygones. I'm not going to pursue any prosecutions against anybody. Um, let's just put this whole sad episode behind us. Um, and, you know, our people kind of said, well, okay, maybe you're right. Let's just move on, folks. And, but, but this is what happens when you, when you decide that you're not going to pursue accountability. Um, you know, the whole point of pursuing legal accountability, which I recognize is, you know, 
there are more forms of accountability than legal accountability. But nevertheless, when people break the law and make uh, appalling legal arguments and claims uh, to justify their criminal behavior, and when the political and legal system just shrug their shoulders collectively and say, oh, well, let's just pretend that didn't happen. Um, well, it happens again and it happens again and it happens again. And the next time it's that much easier for the next guy to do it because, you know, there was no accountability the previous time. So I, I think that's a really powerful lesson of all of this is that 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 instinct, which unfortunately, I think a lot of the Democrats in Congress still seem to share to say, well, let's not make a big fuss. We don't want to look like we're being vindictive. We don't want to look like we're going on a witch hunt. Um, that's a really bad instinct. Uh, you know, when people break the law, you you pursue it. Um, you pursue it even if it's inconvenient, because the price you pay for letting criminal behavior go unchecked uh, is is more double the criminal behavior the next time. That's precisely why I wanted to have you on here to provide perspective like that. The other big development we've had this week, we only got a couple more minutes, I know, given your schedule, but the, but the other big development we had this week, of course, was the president of the United States. Um, you remember him, but went on went on television and said, uh, "Oh yeah, no, if the Russians offered me uh, bad information, my opponent again, yeah, I'd take it, and I wouldn't tell the FBI. Who tells the FBI anything?" And he said, "You said that's just not done." <laughs> and I think that's right. And this is, of course, remember the world that President Donald Trump comes out of is the uh, an extremely corrupt, mob-influenced world of New York shady real estate deals, in which, yeah, you don't call the FBI; otherwise, you don't, you know, you get your kneecaps broken or you don't get the next deal. So I think, I think, yes, the world he comes out of, you don't call the FBI because why would you? You're trying to profit from the corruption, and that is his world. And he's making it very clear that that is still his moral universe, uh, is that if somebody offers you, uh, you know, illegally gained information with a view towards uh, illegally influencing, you know, the election, that rather than do what I think uh, any other political candidate from either political party would have acknowledged was the right thing to do and saying, yeah, even if it's convenient, you've got to tell the FBI because that's counter. You know that th that is uh, a foreign effort to attack our system, our electoral system. Um, that Donald Trump says, "Well, gee, why wouldn't I use it? Why why would I call the FBI? We don't do those things." And yeah, I, I, that's who we elected. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that is his kind of moral. Uh, uh... Uh, orientation, although when you talk about his moral universe, you think of stars to steer by. And I, I think in his case, you know, he's, he's looking in another direction. He may have worms to steer by or something to that effect. But the uh, other, you know, of course, he's incapable of saying anything that's the truth. And so within half an hour of him saying this, of course, people found that he had, in one instance, in Atlantic City, actually called the FBI, try to keep the mob off his back. Um, now, having said all of that, the the the, the question, which is kind of kind of a humorous uh, yeah, yeah. thought, yeah. Well, I, yeah, you can dig deeper there, uh, folks. I'm not going to go into it here, but you know, for example, look at the prices he paid for houses that happened to be owned by the family of mobsters, and whether they were actually purchased at market value. I'll just point you in that direction as one uh, way way that you can look at all of this. But of course. What we've got here is Trump doing this, and then a you know bunch of Democrats 
um, said, oh, that's really terrible. A bunch of Republicans said, oh, he probably didn't really mean that. Um, but, you know, those Democrats you were talking about earlier uh, then said, um, well, we're, we're going to this is serious and we're going to like count to three. And he better stop doing this. Right. By right. The time I'm going to give you one more warning. I'm going to count to three, two and a half, two and three quarters. <laughs> exactly. And, and and it's like, don't these people have children? Have I mean, don't don't they know it works or not? You know, <laughs> um, my dog won't get off the couch no matter what I count to. So, what you know, I mean, th- th- this this is part of the problem. The, pro- the, pro- the president is saying I'm willing to go and commit a traitorous act. And he's saying it on national television. I'm willing to violate the law because as a security clearance holder, he actually is obligated to tell the FBI. I'm willing to say that the head of the FBI is wrong. And the response of everybody is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I'm I'm reminded of a conversation um, I had many years ago now with uh, Les Gelb, the uh, uh, journalist and former head of the Council on Foreign Relations, um, and he was giving some advice to Democrats. This was late in the George W. Bush administration. Um, we were having a discussion about um, the Iraq war, and and uh, this was in the run-up to the 2008 election. And everybody, all the Democrats were saying, well, we just need to argue that you know, we need to withdraw from Iraq immediately and have Iraq be stable, prosperous, and democratic. And that needs to be our position. And Lesgell very, very correctly said, that's nice, but you can't have that. You know, that's not realistic. It's not going to happen. Stop stop saying that your policy is to seek something impossible and start dealing with the actual choices that are in front of us, all of which are bad, some of which are worse, and pick the least bad option. And and I think that that's a little bit of the problem that Democrats are, are having right now when it comes to figuring out how to deal with Donald Trump, that they still are maintaining this kind of fantasy version of, of the world in which they say, well, what we really should seek is, you know, national reconciliation, rising above this divisiveness, winning the 2020 election for a Democrat without having to pursue impeachment, because that would that would really hurt the feelings of people who like Donald Trump and make them really mad. And that's nice. That's also ridiculous at this point, that there is no path to there is no path to Democratic victory in 2020 and no path to, you know, more important, looking beyond the 2020 election, there is no path to restoring a a more robust version of American democracy that in in which the Trump base comes along saying, yeah, you know, you're right. We're really sorry. What an error of judgment on our part. We kind of wish there was a Republican, but we can live with it. That's not going to happen. And I think that what Democrats have not yet accepted um, I, obviously, I'm speaking of the sort of still the powerful, you know, Nancy Pelosi, uh, the 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 powerful majority in Congress, not their isolated Democrats who are speaking out against this. But what the majority of the Democrats have not accepted is that the Trump base is going to hate them no matter what. Um, and the choice is not between uh, a Democrat wins in 2020, but the Trump base is sort of OK with it versus uh, impeachment against Donald Trump was pursued. The Trump base hates them. 
and, you know, things are bad forever. Um, the choices between, I think, pursuing impeachment against Donald Trump, having the Trump base hate the Democrats, uh, and having that's a bad alternative, but it's probably the less bad alternative than not standing up to Donald Trump, still losing the 2020 election, uh, and being even and having weakened our democratic norms even further. I mean, we, we face we face two crummy choices right now. Um, one crummy choice being, you know, pursue an extremely divisive course of action that's going to further piss off the Trump base, but stands a tiny, tiny chance of enabling us in the long run to do some repair work to American law and democracy. And the other choice is we lose everything. And I don't like either choice, but it seems to me the first one's a little better than the second. Well, I might even argue that in, in, the, in the case of uh, uh, the, get, the the number of votes you're likely to gain by uh, not pursuing an impeachment versus the number None. of votes you might gain by making the compelling com impeachment case, uh, that the latter may actually be a more fruitful path. But, you know, it's all speculation. And when you get into issues like this and lousy choices— um, one of the things that should influence it is what's the right thing to do and what's the thing that's going to benefit us in the long term. And I think you made that point extremely well, um, and uh, as you always do every week, and I'm really, really glad you're here. And I would say um, not only are you the leading legal mind of, of the deep state, but you're probably ahead of the attorney general. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, I'm very flattered, but not very, very flattered, because it's, as we say, it's a low bar with two, two R's at the so end. It is a low bar with two R's. Uh, well, with that, we'll say bye-bye um, for now, Rosa. Have a safe drive home. We'll talk to you next week. And thank you very much for joining in on uh, this particular episode. Thank you. Bye-bye. In any event, we've come to the end of our time here. Uh, for this, the live portion of this broadcast of Deep State Radio. Uh, I want to thank Ben for joining us. I want to thank Ryan again for joining us. Uh, and uh, for those of you who want to hear uh, other broadcasts or go back and hear the conversation we had with Larry Tribe, which does dovetail into this one, um, uh, or to get some of the other content on the site, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And while you're there, if you feel compelled to, you know, you could sign up, you could become a member, you could help support all of this. If you don't feel compelled to do that, um, well, we won't think less of you, but we'll be hurt. <laughs> well, you know, it'll, 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 it'll hurt us a little bit, sting. Uh, but, you know, if you're there, try to do that. Uh, in any event, we do this three times a week. We've got Unredacted, uh, which comes once a week. We've got Washington for Beautiful People, which comes once a week. We've got National Security Magazine, which comes... Once a week, usually. We've been off for a couple of weeks, but we'll be back on again next week. And so come join the other podcasts. Go to the website, and we look forward to uh, being with you again very, very soon. Bye-bye. Bye, Ben. Take it easy. Thanks for having me. Good to yeah, talk with you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.